Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies today. We're talking about Jesus Christ Superstar. We're talking about it with Josalie Pollitt. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. If you hear some clicking going on beside me, it's my cat, Tony, who can't stop walking on this keyboard. But we love Tony, and we're just going to get through it together. <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar is a sung-through rock opera with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice, loosely based on the Gospels' accounts of the Passion. The work interprets the psychology of Jesus and other characters with much of the plot centered on Judas, who is dissatisfied with the direction in which Jesus is steering his disciples. This is an interesting time to release an episode about Jesus Christ Superstar as director Norman Jewison passed this week at age 97. Norman Jewison, a towering giant, a uh, favorite of ours, directed Moonstruck, directed Fiddler on the Roof, The Hurricane, In the Heat of the Night, The Thomas Crown Affair, Rollerball, interesting. <laughs> But just had a really tremendous career uh, right at that time where movies from old Hollywood started to go out of fashion and movies from like the radical auteur, largely male directors of the 1970s started to uh, come into the consciousness. But really just a tremendous career and was a part of a big cultural shift. So rest well, Norman Jewison. 97. Not bad. Thanks for everything. Josalie Pollitt is a fabulous singer and songwriter. I love Josalie. I love their record in the garden by the weeds. You can find all of their info uh, linked in the show notes. It's a kind of a band camp situation. Love, love, love them. Yeah. Support people on band camp. If you're able to do so, um, streaming is terrible. So if you find something you like on streaming, follow up and, uh, uh go support the person on Bandcamp Cause that really helps musicians out. And we love helping out musicians, don't we? Because they make our lives better and we love their work and we compensate them financially. That's how we do. Please, if you're in and around the San Francisco area, the Bay Area, come and find us at San Francisco Sketchfest. We will be there on February 3rd talking about Forrest Gump right in the afternoon, right? The, the best time to talk about Forrest Gump, as far as I'm concerned, right in the, the daytime. That's when Forrest Gump should be discussed on this stage comedically. We will be joined by Chelsea Weber-Smith, our great friend from American Hysteria. You know and love Chelsea, as do we. And uh, it's going to be a blast. Come and find us. Link in the show notes. We would love to see you there. How are you doing? What are you doing? What are you watching? What are you thinking? What are you wearing? What's your favorite new hat? What is going on in your world? How is all of it? Let us know. Uh, over on socials, we are at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod. Let us know how you're doing. And don't forget, if you haven't been told in a minute or so, that you, my friend, are good. We appreciate you. Thanks so much for being here. If you're wondering what I am into... And what I'm doing these days, I'm reading Ed Begley Jr.'s memoir, and I like it a whole lot. It's just like a bunch of little stories by Ed Begley Jr., who somehow knows everybody, like every single person ever, like hung with Harry Dean Stanton, who got him into Alan Watts. Like, think about that. Harry Dean Stanton got him into Alan Watts. It's truly remarkable. The book is called To the Temple of Tranquility, and step on it. I love that. 
that is resonant. <laughs> anyway, worth checking out if you like Hollywood stories. It's just like a number of chapters of stories of fun recollections from Ed Begley Jr.'s life. I really like it. He says his father said to him, you know, I know everything you're against, but what are you for? And that it feels cliche or dismissive. And like his dad was just kind of like a classic Republican guy. But that's a fucking great question. I know what you're against, but what are you for? And I have been thinking about that a lot. So I'm posing that question to you. I know what you're against. I think. What are you for? Anyway, we have a new Barbie bonus episode available for uh, folks who support us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. It was a great chat. It was about uh, asking why studios never learn lessons, it seems. It was about, you know, not just movies, but the discourse around movies and what that ends up doing to us in one way or another. It was about, quote, critical discourse. You'll know what it means uh, when you listen to the episode. So check out that Barbie bonus episode by supporting us on Patreon and Apple Apple podcast subscriptions. Uh, we have a lot of fun making the show and you make it possible. And then you get uh, to hear us talk about Barbie for an hour and 20 minutes. Win, 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 right? It's several wins at one time. <laughs> oh, I wanted to mention, I talked about the movie Can't Stop the Music on the podcast, The Gaily Planet. I don't know if you listen to The Gaily Planet. It's fucking great. And I talked about Can't Stop the Music for over an hour. So if you're looking to hear someone who is involved in You Are Good talking about Can't Stop the Music for an hour and 20 minutes, I have some great news. Check out The Gaily Planet. I will have that linked in the show notes. We mentioned in the episode, but this movie was filmed in Israel and it was filmed in Palestine. And... I don't know if you know, but this week, January 21st through the 28th, activists led by Palestinian journalist Bisan Oda are calling for a global strike to push for permanent ceasefire in Gaza. If you are, as I have been, looking for actions to get involved in calling for ceasefire, you can probably find some in your neck of the woods at ifnotnowmovement.org. All right. I think that's it. Oh, but, but for just one other thing. We there are a couple of times in this episode where we're just like this info is not in our wheelhouse. This info on sort of like what happened in the Bible. Uh, we talk actually a lot about our relationships with Jesus. We talk about our relationships with kind of the story of Jesus or our relationships with sort of like worship and how we grew up. We talk about all that in this episode. But some of this territory we don't know about. And sometimes I think we actually make explicit calls to action. Where we're like, if you know about it, just feel free to explain it to us on social media. So please, if you hear us getting something wrong or whatever, know that this is not our area of study. We're trying to talk about this rock opera, but it is rich in some uh, biblical history. So yeah, feel free to let us know. Tony's back on the fucking keyboard. Tony, what is happening with the keyboard, my friend? All right, that's enough intro for you. Let's get into it. Let's talk about Jesus Christ Superstar with Jocely Pollitt. Hello, Sarah Marshall Superstar. Hello, Alex Steed Superstar. Do you think you're who they say you are? Oh my gosh, I, what a journey. I've watched Jesus Christ Superstar three times in advance of this episode. Mm -hmm. I am realizing that my brain needs stops in between music to store the information or else I have a very difficult time understanding what just happened. So I can't wait for all of us to explain what happens in this movie. <laughs> yes, I'm excited for that because I'll just say like, as you might've guessed based on the title, if you haven't seen it, this is a musical depiction of one of 
the most frequently reproduced stories of the last 2000 years, which is a passion play. And somehow still while watching this movie at no time, did I have any idea what was going to happen next? (laughs) If you have not seen this movie and you're like, they can't possibly have a really horny scene where Jesus gets whipped almost to death. Uh, you're wrong. You're so wrong. And we could do a whole episode about this. <laughs> if you've read the Bible, you know, they could do that, though, right? If you've read the Bible semi recently, if you've read the stories, <laughs> let me tell you, Alex, if I had been younger when it was a thing, I would have been very much a super who lock John Locke kind of an adolescent. I would have spent like roughly three years on Sherlock slash fanfic. (laughs) So with that kind of disposition, I read the like Dorling Kinders League Children's Testament parts about Jesus when I was about nine. And I was like, I am having a lot of feelings and they feel prurient rather than, you know, the other thing that's supposed to be happening. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm sorry. We're going to touch on all of that and more. And the reason that we're covering this movie is that we are blessed to be joined by Josalie Pollitt, who, as I understand it, was weaned on this film. Yes, uh, I was definitely weaned on this film. I came from a household of my single father treating this as both a Christmas movie and an Easter movie. I did not grow up religious whatsoever. (laughs) Oh, that was my next question. (laughs) This movie was religion. Like my understanding of Jesus Christ and anything that happened in the Bible was simply from this film for the majority of my young adulthood and childhood. And still to this day, sometimes I'm not sure like what is what my perceived understanding of the Bible was from watching this movie too many times, (laughs) or like what it actually is, or what religion actually is. It's very skewed. It's all turned into lots of like 70s, horny, theatrical, wonderful ripping songs because of this movie. So I've deep ties to this film. These songs really do rip. And I I hope our conversation today touches on a question I have, which is, what is the difference between religion and musical theater? And is it a big one? (laughs) And I would hazard, probably not. (laughs) I don't think so. They feel very similar to me. Yeah. Sarah, what is your relationship with Jesus Christ Superstar? Your awareness of it? Was it in your life before? Well, Kind of, because I've never seen this movie before in my life. And I have listened to like, you know, one of the cast albums sporadically and as as an adolescent, mainly because my mom being, you know, an iconic boomer, loved this musical when it came out. And she will like sing little riffs from it, which let me tell you, she does not normally do with musicals. (laughs) (laughs) And so I understood this to be something that was like pretty important to her. And I think what I didn't get a sense of until watching this and reading a bit about it is that it seems to have actually been a very generationally important musical, you know, because within the sort of general hippie movement, there was the Jesus movement, you know, and there's a lot, just a lot of Jesus-y stuff going a lot on, a lot of people behaving like Jesus, in my opinion, in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and that like both this and Hair were musicals that were like very directly about things that teenagers and adolescents and young adults were like thinking about and going through and, you know, both very political. And then that they both weirdly 
because of just how long things take, I guess, were made into movies in the late 70s, by which time everyone was like... <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, I'm dealing with inflation. And <laughs> yeah, I can't get gas. I can't get gas and disco sex. You know, that was it was just a different time culturally. <laughs> and that seems like kind of a curse. But I had never, no, I had never seen any iteration of this musical before. And frankly, I was blown away. <laughs> so similarly, my mom, I will describe as an acid mm. Christian. Mm -hmm. Like my mom did a lot of acid in the 70s. <laughs> Where was she doing this acid? Would she like walk around on out? Did she just, was she doing a job? What was happening? <laughs> I think she had, I think her first, in her first marriage, which preceded her marriage with my father, she just like had a partner and they did a lot of fun drugs together and they were like early 70s hippies nice and so she was she was that and she was raised catholic got out of catholicism eventually was just kind of part of like a mainline new england protestant christian church and has long been a devout christian never has ever in a single day in her life been annoying about it but is like really just like community involved involved in the church just like whatever does all that stuff and we didn't have a record player in our house we had an eight track player and a cassette player but we always had the jesus christ superstar record in our house and I always was curious why. And she's like, oh, I, I loved it when I was uh, younger. So we always had this like artifact from it in our house. Mm -hmm. I, until I watched this two weeks ago, had never heard a song from this movie. Hmm. Didn't know any of the imagery. I knew kind of like vaguely like what the film stock looked like, but I didn't know uh, whatever. And then when I started posting like screenshots of this on Instagram stories, the coolest people I know <laughs> all responded with how important of a movie this was to them growing up. I had people, no joke, send uh, messages of them singing songs and voice <laughs> memos. Like they were so enthused by how this plays a role. And I was like, wow, this is a real fucking formative art weirdo text. <laughs> like spanning generations too, because it sounds like, like from boomer parents to my father was like firmly Gen X. So he was a little kid in the seventies, mm. but wanted that like big rock star, like high Ted Neely notes from this movie to like be his whole life. <laughs> and he like, he instilled that in me. So it was like coming at it from so many different angles. People find like really amazing ways to love this movie. Oh, that's so cool. My God. Yeah. So just th these are all a little bit forewarnings. Uh, Josie, obviously well-versed with the text. Sarah and I, not so much. We're not experts in this text. We're talking about how it makes us feel. So when people are like, it was shot there. Like, it's that's not what this is about. It was shot in Palestine, which is very timely. Mm -hmm. It was shot in Palestine. Yeah, that is that is important. But I would say, you know, sometimes people are like, you got the details wrong. We're talking about feelings. Yes. Is it called a movie podcast about details? No, it is not. <laughs> Is it called a movie podcast about knowing exactly what everyone's name is all the time, like a big show off? <laughs> no. Thankfully, it's not. <laughs> Sarah, before we dive into those feelings, do you want to take us on the bus to the desert? Yes. Okay. So this movie, I would like to backtrack for a second. I know I brought this up before, but one of my most classic ill-received tweets, aside from the one where I said I like to eat unsalted potato chips sometimes... <laughs> When the dip is salty. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Thank you. <laughs> I can immediately just sense the response to that tweet. It, it was swift and immediate. 
But another thing I said that people didn't like is that, and I really believe this, I was not trying to piss people off even, was that it's interesting to me how we have never, as far as I can tell, truly figured out how to adapt musicals into movies. It is one of the most awkward (laughs) forms of film. I mean, what do you guys think about that statement? Yeah, I completely agree. Especially like this one is a perfect example where everything from like the costumes to like the arrival and the setup and just the vibes of it as a whole don't feel like a movie at all. You're Hmm. like, I don't know how, but I'm in the (laughs) desert watching this musical unfold. And I I feel very similarly about a lot of, a lot of musicals where it's like musical movies anyway. Mm -hmm. I've heard countless people when talking about acting or filmmaking or whatever, it's like film is a facial medium. That's interesting. Almost all of the acting happens on the face Mm -hmm. and not in like sort of like exposition or whatever. I mean, if it's a Marvel movie, it happens all in the exposition. But like the. um, But if we think of the heart of cinema, I'm sorry to use that term. (laughs) We think of like Greta Garbo at the end of Queen Christina. Yes. You know, their big face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where so much like nuance and everything is happening. And there's just something about like the like Broadway style of exposition that feels so weird on screen. And it's so hard to reconcile like what one art form does with what another one does. And I can think of very few examples where like I was fully convinced. (laughs) Yeah, that is interesting to compare. Yeah, the hand gestures. You think about just like how much when you're singing and, and like trying to act out with your body what you're saying and using your hands to like gesture about hair and how you feel about stuff. It's like, that's not something you see in movies. And it feels a little unnatural sometimes, I think, to visualize that. Like Mm -hmm. somebody is singing and showing me what they're singing about at the same time. And it just, for me, it feels a little disconnected, but in a really wonderful way. Totally. I also feel like there's a maybe a sense in which the audience is a character when you're seeing something live, right? Yeah. Because if we were watching Judas sing his song, then like we're aware that our presence is part of what's happening. Yes. Right. And if you're just watching him run around on some rocks, then there's a limit to how much he can directly connect with you. I don't know. It's interesting. But I mean, all that's to say that I do think that this is actually this to me is an example of an adaptation that works, mm-hmm. I think, because it's not trying to be just a regular movie. And it does start off with like much like Friday the 13th. It begins with a bunch of 20 year olds going to a remote location. <laughs> and so these kids turn up on a bus in the middle of the desert. And then they just it's like the Oregon Country Fair. They set up a giant play set and they do a passion play. And uh that Jesus, he's a bit of a martyr. I will say that. <laughs> but, the, but and the way this works out, which I throughout was kind of wondering how close this was to the Bible, and obviously didn't bother checking on it. That Jesus has perhaps taken on a bit too much. That's kind of the funniest <laughs> thing I could have said. Um, <laughs> and Judas is like, hey. This is all getting a bit out of hand, like step down and like stop doing this, basically. And Jesus is like, no. (laughs) And so Judas sells him out to the Romans under the understanding that like he needs to be taken down a peg in order to just like slow down and be a normal person again. And the Romans are like, thanks, we're going to kill him. And he's like, what? No. And 
is my read correct of this that like there isn't a, God isn't actually a presence in this movie? Does he no. show up at any? Isn't that great? The, the thing that blows my mind about this is like this movie was shown to the Pope at the time. I don't know what Pope it was. Some guy. And that Pope was like, I love this movie. <laughs> Good job. And I'm like, did we see the same movie? Because Judas is making outside of his weird slut shamey piece is making a fantastic argument that you could easily come out of the other side of this movie going, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Judas is right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He's so humanized in it. And like, so I grew up thinking that like Judas was the good guy. I was like, he's, uh, he's very understandable in this movie. He's yeah. very convincing. Right, because without God, you're like, yeah, you, Jesus is probably, you might just yeah. be a man. <laughs> Which is such an interesting comparison to Dracula 2000, where <laughs> Judas is the first of all vampires because vampires were created by the act of betraying Christ somehow. And it is like the very human Jesus, I would say. And I, I don't know, I have a weird, should we all talk about our relationship to Jesus? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Great. Because my relationship to Jesus is that like, Actually, starting with my mom, whose dad was from a prominent Jewish family in Des Moines, married a Gentile woman, and that, and had already, the family had already been completely non-practicing, I think, to that point. And so my mom grew up going to Episcopalian church because she liked singing in the choir with her friends, but also I think seeing herself as an other in Iowa. And so it's like, Within all that, weirdly, like Jesus is the religious figure who I know best because then she sent me up to Episcopalian schools and was like, we don't believe any of this, but you're going to go talk about Jesus for 10 years. And I was like, all right. So obviously, like I'm sure so many billions of women have in the past, I immediately developed sexual feelings for Jesus. <laughs> and like, I'm just curious about how much that's holding Christianity together because like nuns are brides of Christ. And if you're going to be married to somebody who's, you know, only going to show up in miracles and stuff, then like he'd better be hot. Yeah. Alex, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was just talking with Carolyn about like what appealed to me about Christmas growing up and what I still like about Christmas. And I think Christmas is so stacked with various kinds of opposing symbols that it's easy to come out with absolutely opposing ideas of like Christmas and Christianity and be correct on either side, which is to say like you can see all of the kind of commercialism stuff, which is kind of nothing to do with Christianity, has entirely to do with commercialism and come out that way. For me, I was involved in the church until I was about 12 and I loved our church. And in retrospect, I realized all the things I liked about it were all the pagany weird things. Mm -hmm. It's like during the Advent season, you'd go at night and it would be dark and there'd be candles and wreaths. And like, I liked all the fucking weirdo stuff. <laughs> like that's what I liked the most. But as I developed, barring all of my issues with organized Christianity, one being when my parents got divorced, the church that we went to kind of cold shouldered my mother, even though my dad was never involved in the church. So there was like kind of that, you know, that my mom went on to work for the archdiocese in Boston right before spotlight times happened wow. and was there as spotlight times were happening. So mm -hmm. that flavored things for me. But as I develop my own relationship, my grandmother, similar to my mother in kind of becoming born again, but not born again, Baptist became so cool and i understood jesus like through her eyes and through johnny cash's eyes <laughs> and i was like this is and then through jay baker through jim and tammy's son mm. i re-engaged my relationship with jesus as like a you know punk rebel 
spiritual thing. And then as I read in my teens, as I read sort of like essays and books about the parallels between Jesus and like Eastern religion, I was like, oh, I'm down. I'm not down with the, you know, Constantinian uh, approach to spreading Christianity, but like, I like the idea of this guy as I understand him. And, And then one time for a series of reasons, I ended up going to a evangelical youth group for one night because my mom was like, you should meet some people. I hear this church is okay. And I don't think she fully understood the scope of what evangelical Christianity was. And I went for one night and saw such a radically different vision that was so oppositional to what I understood that I I can still feel the upset I felt about being kind of confronted with that. But my Jesus, yeah, it's like a punk a punk food, not bombs guy. That's my, my Jesus. <laughs> Josely. That's a beautiful way to describe him. I think, I think <laughs> I relate to that image of Jesus very deeply because like I said, this movie was really kind of like my whole introduction and like kind of soul understanding of this story in any capacity. I didn't grow up religious whatsoever. My family is a couple generations removed from practicing LDS folks. I'm here in Utah. So religion is very different. But as far as like paintings of the white Mormon Jesus in like my step grandparents home, like he looks pretty similarly to Ted Neely in this movie. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is just (laughs) this is what Jesus looks like, obviously. But really like a casual relationship, no defined relationship with Jesus Christ at all. It was like, he's around once in a while to sing some great songs. And uh, I understand (laughs) that he's a very cool and important guy to people. But like my dad had this way of, of sharing that movie and like mild stories from the Bible. Like I do remember him reading little chunks of the Bible to me, but very much in a like, let's hear about this cool story kind of a way and not in a like, this is truth or this is reality or this is religion that you should follow in any capacity. It was just like, here's some fun stuff we can talk about. Let's check it out. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it just very similarly, I was like, this guy is cool. Like my dad tried to raise me a little bit as like a tiny activist. We were often like sitting in front of big bulldozers, like tearing down little parks in my in my city when I was little. And so my dad kind of taught me that like, yeah, this guy, Jesus was kind of trying to do the same thing. Very like love focused, very peace focused. Mm -hmm. So like it just felt casually good and like positive. And I think that's how I feel about this movie, too, because it was it never felt like too hefty or or any big weight on it because I was really lucky to not grow up with any intense religious trauma like left that to my parents and their parents but it allowed me to like have this kind of really safe view of Jesus Christ that I don't think translated to the real world very well because as soon as as I started talking to anybody with like any form of religion in their life or religious trauma it was just a very different experience so Mm. this actually reminds me of my growing up with my dad's relationship with Amadeus, which now that I think of it, are both movies about the very fraught, pretty gay relationships between a visionary man and the man who loves and fears him. And then the visionary dies at the end. And you're like, well, that's the that's the movie my dad loves. <laughs> <laughs> which is also a movie my dad deeply loves. I, I listened to that episode and felt just very kindred with you, Sarah, through, yeah. through that entire episode because of my relationship with Amadeus being very similar. 
Well, I guess in terms of what stands out about the way they they tell this movie, like it does, this whole movie to me truly feels like this could happen in Marfa, Texas. This could be happening <laughs> right now. It feels like an actual kind of like arts happening. And I, I think just kind of really my biggest read on this is that I think it all works for me so well because it's, I don't know how divisive it is, but I love the frame story of like, this is a story that a bunch of people from the contemporary moment of this movie are acting out to try and learn from it and then just have to, at the end, get back on the bus and go home, which we see them doing. Yeah. I love that. And I love like, you know, I've I've always understood theoretically the cultural overlap between where hippies landed, where like left activists landed, where like that conflation of it's a series of characters caricatures that gets like flattened with the retelling of history over time. But like all of the different things that are happening in the sixties as they go into the seventies, one of the primary things is you have like a new youth culture of people who are like, we need to do something about how things are because the way things are, aren't great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I've always understood that like that a lot of people kind of settled into either sort of culty hippie Jesus stuff, or they went extremely the other way and became sort of like fundamentalist to like overcracked or like there are a bunch of places where I understand Jesus kind of fitting into what people did after being hippies or even what they did a little bit sort of while being hippies or activists, et cetera. Seeing this really helped me truly understand it where it's like you have this guy who sort of is like trying to kind of like do the right thing, but then he ends up taking on way too much and he becomes overwhelmed by that. He's up against sort of like a militant force in one way or another. You know, you always saw this in like activist movements. You had the guys that they were close with and started the thing and then it starts to splinter and come apart because people think he's not actually doing it the right way. You have some pretty gay songs. You have, again, a delightful whipping scene. Like (laughs) I really started to understand, again, like it's a thing that I'm like, oh, I get that tracks how like people would kind of like fall into one place or another, but like seeing this passion play (laughs) seeing this like come out where you have these people who start as revolutionaries and then things kind of go naturally in the ways that they ultimately go one being the quote truth teller ends up getting fucking killed and his followers either like still super into him or start to stray thinking that like it's not going the way he originally said it was going to go or he's made it about him more than the actual movement like this feels like the 70s commenting on the 60s <laughs> as much as it feels like it's about Jesus and the story of Jesus. Yeah, and it, it feels so, so humanizing in, in a way. I've watched it twice in the last couple of weeks just prepping for this. And before that, I had never watched it through any other eye than like, I'm singing along to every word. This is this sort of important to me. And watching it this time, it just felt so regular people it was just so like yeah like friend conflict and like jealousy and there's like this interesting like jealousy happening with mary magdalene and there's just like so much with the apostles happening where it's like oh i was just here to hang out because i want to be remembered and like it feels just so normal human conflict that that like really doesn't feel like it needs to go beyond the bounds of just like what regular friend groups could be talking about today in any capacity it's just Hmm. it feels so 
so regular to me in this movie where it's like, oh yeah, this doesn't have to be this like huge, meaningful religion. This is just how people are in a very regular way with a lot more singing. <laughs> yeah, they have a scene, like any kind of like hipster music or like indie scene. It's like a portrait of that moment. Exactly. And I love Judas talking in like the, the finale of the superstar song when he's got the outfit change that's incredible. And he says something about how like, you really messed up by telling your story now, because if you would have told it during present day, you would have had like mass communication and that would have done a lot better for your cause. So you dummy, <laughs> you picked the wrong time, which I just, I love that so much. That is so good. Jesus did really get on the ground floor though. Like it, it is kind of fascinating to think about just, you know, cause Kelsey Weber Smith from American hysteria is very big on the historical Jesus. And one of the things I feel like they often point out is that like Jesus was one of many, many, many self-proclaimed messiahs in the period. And he yeah. was just the one that stuck mm -hmm. in the biggest way, which is like really also funny to think about that it's like it's just a numbers game you know it's like entering eurovision <laughs> it's just it's got to be somebody so it could be you <laughs> yeah somebody i i forget which character says it but somebody says that says as much in the movie where they're like the jews create like a lot of messiahs don't they or something along those lines mm -hmm. like meaning that it's like this isn't like the first time that we've heard this you're like oh brother here comes another one and they're also like yeah. let's nip this in the bud you know let's make sure his ideas don't spread anymore by killing him and it's like oh boy have i got news <laughs> well and what i liked about that tension was there was that measure at least as it's portrayed in the movie is they capture jesus they're gonna like make an example and he's like i'll whip him and the crowd is like no you have to kill him and he's like no I'll whip him It'll, that'll be fine right because like he's like now hesitating he's like ah if i kill him i know what's gonna happen and they like demand his blood and uh that's where things go you know two thousand years into the future <laughs> that was so confusing to me as a kid. I really didn't understand. And still, even on this watch, and maybe I need to read more of the Bible to understand better. <laughs> this is really saying about my lack of knowledge about Christianity as a whole. But that change in, in the people that loved him so much, I like could not wrap my brain around that hmm. when I was a young person of just, hmm. no, they loved him. How did they go from loving him to wanting him dead so quickly? I don't know what's happening. This is very dramatic. Uh, it, it still doesn't make sense. Yeah. As a weird kid, I was kind of obsessed with the crucifixion and like, <laughs> who among us? Am I right? I mean, <laughs> I know that me and Martin Scorsese are in the same boat. As a kid, reading the like kids Bible was like so again, like similar to you, like I think so mysterious to me because there were so many human actions that like were just described, but there wasn't any language about trying to get into why that motivation was there. And I would also love to point out that Pontius Pilate, who I would say is one of the gayer roles in the story, if each role wasn't gayer than the last, <laughs> is played by Barry Denon from The Shining. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I didn't, I didn't make that connection. I didn't either. Sometimes I will listen to, I don't know what this tendency is, but like sometimes my radio will just be on Christian radio and I won't change it. And I don't know why. And never am I like, yeah, good point. I just like, sometimes I just like listen to like the beats and rhythms of conversation. You got to hear what's going on. Yeah. And I, I was listening last night and 
this I feel like addresses why we don't have the answers to to these things or why we're still muddy on on why these changes happen. Someone called in and great question was like, I don't understand what Jesus is <laughs> in the context of God. Huh. Like it's his son. It's the like reborn in the flesh. Like, how does that it's work? It's the Trinity. What the heck is that? Yeah. And they asked these guys, the guys laughed, laughed not in a condescending way. They were like, yeah, this is a understandably difficult thing to wrap your head around. It's whatever. And then they just manu- they just like manually described it like Jesus is the son born of God of the flesh and like is God as man or whatever. And they were like, and uh, we don't know why it's like that. It just is. And I was like, yeah, that's like if you have that as a mechanism and how you explain things and everyone's fine with it, then you can just kind of rub over blurry plot things. <laughs> we don't know why, it just that's just how it is. It's <laughs> a really good fail to have. <laughs> is were they turning and calling for him to be crucified out of sort of sympathetic rage and going, you know, Rome's in charge, it's all on you? Or were they doing it because they know that Jesus needed to be crucified in order to I don't, again, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know either. I kind of think there was just nothing good on TV that afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, crucify him. And Creed is like, Bonnie Hunt is on. (laughs) But I was also very bothered as a kid because it seems like Pontius Pilate is like, oh, I don't want to crucify this guy. How do I get out of this? And he's like, okay, crowd, every day we let one person not get crucified. (laughs) So today it's either Jesus or Barabbas, who's like a, you know, I don't know, scary guy or something. Yeah, Barabbas was just like would beat up four-year-olds on the street. Like that was his brand as far as I could tell. (laughs) Right. And then the crowd is like, give us Barabbas. And I was like, why do they want Barabbas? What's wrong with these people? Does it get explained in the Bible? I don't want to read the Bible. Wait, next time one of us is at Starbucks and there's an obvious Bible study happening, we can just lean and be like, hey, what, what, what's the deal with that Pontius Pilate guy? What's his deal? Was he an all right guy? He may have been an all right guy. I know we have both active Christians who listen to the show and, and ex-evangelicals, et cetera. This is a place where we absolutely welcome some clarification. Yeah, I would love to know. Please let us know what the deal is. Yeah, was it just mob mentality? Wait, I'm just like, this would be so annoying to listen to. I'm just going to look up Pontius Pilate for a sec. You guys continue. Please do. Can we talk uh, briefly, uh, while Sarah's looking this up, about King Herod's song, oh, because uh, how did that grab you when you were a kid? King Herod, played by Josh Mustel, Nepo baby, Josh Mustel. <laughs> oh, that whole scene is so incredible. Yeah, uh, tell us about it. Just so fun, so beautiful. Everyone's makeup is just so perfectly sixties, seventies. The costumes, the dancing in that part—it's just so frivolous. And they're all out on that big deck. Like, that's the cool place to hang out if you're in the middle of the horrible hot desert. It's just like on this deck on this like salty looking lake pond thing. Oh, and the song is so good. I think about that song all the time. And Herod's like, how would we describe vibe? He has uh, rectangular yellow glasses, which is already just a great look. He's a big boy. Like a lot of the leads that we see are kind of like um, 70s Coke slender. And uh, Herod's not. He looks great. He has certainly intentional or not like a queer vibe. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He can't wait to meet Jesus. (laughs) And he has a whole song and dance about it. And I love it. Yeah. 
It's like so bully vibe. Like he just seems like the mean kid in school. That's just like, all right, you're, you got to prove to me. And then I'm going to be really mean to you when, when you say nothing or whatever. And it's just like, he has such a good mean guy vibe in this, but it's like, ah, so that whole scene is incredible. When I am trying to convince people that have never seen Jesus Christ Superstar to watch the movie, I show them just like a small clip of, of Herod's song. And I'm like, this is what you're getting into. This is a blast. This is probably a well-known thing at this point, and I'm I'm going to guess it, and someone will let me know, I'm sure. But it reminds, have you seen Moana? Yes. It reminds of Jermaine Clement's song, mm-hmm. Shiny, yeah. where he's sort of showing off like how great he is and like how not great they are. <laughs> like, I, it feels like this has to have been pulled hmm. from this scene in this movie. It's a perfect connection. <laughs> That's nice. It's Jermaine, by the way. Very important. What did I call him? You said Jermaine. Oh, Jermaine. Thank you. I've been saying that wrong for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. So you know how uh, there's this transcription software called Trint? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that always makes me think of like, what if a, a nice guy from New Zealand showed up for work at an American office and they're like, what's your name? So we can make a sign for your door. And he's like, oh, Trint. And they're like, okay. And then he shows up the next day and they've written T-R-I-N-T on his door. And he's like, no, my name, my name's not Trent. My name's Trent. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that forever. Sorry. Because his name's Trent. It's my joke. But he can't correct them. Okay, so I found um, a site called Bible Odyssey. Thank you. Which seems like a Christian name to me. And this is some good writing. So let me read it to you. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, 26 to 37 CE, during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius. His claim to fame is his role in crucifying Jesus. What a legacy. What are you known for? Not crucifying Jesus. Subtitle, Pilate, a weak wimp? Dot, 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 question mark. Scholars have debated Pilate's role in Jesus's crucifixion. Pilate has usually been understood as a weak figure whom the Jerusalem leaders bully into crucifying Jesus. This reading emphasizes that Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent, wondering, quote, what evil has he done? Mark 15, 14, Matt 27, 23, Luke 23, 4, Luke 23, 14 to 22. Yet he is weak and cannot stand up to these leaders. More citations that I'm not going to read. Threatened by possible crowd violence and by accusations of his disloyalty to the emperor if he does not crucify Jesus, John 19, 12, Pilate tamely yields to their demands. This approach constructs Pilate as a weak wimp. (laughs) Powerless and disinterested. This feels like a chat GPT article. Anyway. Anyways, so Pilate's a weak wimp. (laughs) And then there's another subtitle that says dot, 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 or an astute and strong governor, question mark. This weak pilot approach, however, has unrealistically played down the power and responsibilities entrusted to Roman. Go- All right, I'm bored now. <laughs> so nobody knows. So, well, I guess like at least within the story, we're meant to understand generally that Pontius Pilate is like, I don't want to crucify Jesus. And the crowd is like, you simply must. And he's like, well... If the crowd says so, and uh, he does it anyway. So that's, I don't know. I appreciate that as a theme within the Jesus story. Yeah, there's a great lesson in that. Which is don't (laughs) crucify people because of peer pressure. Or you'll be known for that forever. That'll be your claim to fame. Josely, how did the imagery and the musical style of the movie imprint on you? And what is its like lasting legacy for you? Uh, I think... I know we already said these songs rip, but that's like really the main word that I can think of when I watch this movie. 
And I feel like, as you said, Alex, like they all kind of blend together, which I think is kind of a positive for this one because it makes the weaker songs just like happen in a little blip where you're like, oh, that was nothing. We're back to this like ripping guitar line that's going to happen through this whole next 10 minutes that I'm obsessed with. (laughs) My dad had like probably that same vinyl copy of like the original cast recording where it's got like Ian Gillen from Deep Purple as Jesus Christ, but like Carl Anderson, who's Judas in the movie is, is that Judas on the record or on the album as well. And the vocal performances in this movie are just so unreal, but like in such a specific dad rock way, not like now (laughs) dad rock, but like seventies dad rock. And I say dad rock, I guess I mean my own father and not, not how we generally agree dad rock is, but these songs are just like that guitar line that opens up as you're getting that, like the image of it getting closer and closer to Judas sitting on the mountain and it like blurs and then it zooms back out and it blurs and it zooms back out while the guitar solo is coming in. The feeling starts at that moment. I sing along through the whole thing and it just doesn't stop. And every little piece of it is so burned into my brain. And for the longest time, I was like, I don't know if this is because it's actually good or I've just seen it so many times that it is just like, I saw it at too young of an impressionable age. And now I'm just like, this is peak musical movie film this is everything but it is it's so just burned into me at this point that every line I sing along to if I watch it now it's it's just so so good so important to me (laughs) I guess it feels like there is something valuable about you know constructing a presentation of Jesus iconography that makes it about human beings and sort of relatable in that way. And I'm, I don't know, I'm just so curious about all the people who saw this, you know, as a musical or as a movie kind of in the period around it coming out and how they related to it, because it, I, I'm really stuck on the fact that it, the emphasis is so much on what's happening on earth, because it does feel like, you know, so much of the worst of Christian rhetoric, especially lately in America and within fundamentalism has turned it all into a death drive, you know, because you're allowed to essentially ask people to lay down their lives for you if you're promising them a a reward later on, which Jesus did talk about, but perhaps we bring up too much. Well, and and I I think about it, like how perfect of a cultural text this was specifically because like, for example, Kevin Allison, when I was talking about this on Twitter, who's been on the show before, comedian, risk the state, gay kink guy. He risked the state? He risked the state. Um, <laughs> and I bring up the gay kink guy thing in particular because I know he was, I believe he was, ra- he was raised in Cincinnati by like Christian parents. He was talking recently about the draconian sort of anti-gay laws going into the 80s, if not the 90s, in the town. Jesus Christ Superstar if you were a kid, like gave you something to be into that your parents were theoretically fine with because it says Jesus Christ in the title, but it was this. You know what I mean? Like it feels like it's the perfect piece Mm -hmm. of like accidental contraband that makes it possible for you to like engage in Hmm. something that looks like subversive culture or like is subversive culture and sort of the fabric of, of like what the music is and what some of the imagery is. And it gave you a cover to be able to do yeah. it because you're in a musical about the passion play. <laughs> yeah. And it's celebrating all the things that parents were most freaking out about in this period, right? And especially if you're 
you know, so many people watching this movie, your identification is with the sex worker who's in love with the <laughs> radical who's about to get popped by the feds. Absolutely. Totally. That's your proxy. I mean, the Pope liked it as a cover. So if you're a kid, you're like into this rock and roll, like sweaty guy movie. And you could say like, no, mom, the Pope approved this message. This is great. When I was uh, <laughs> probably in the fifth grade, my dad took me on a, a work trip where he was going to Florida and he had got us tickets to see a live performance of the musical. And it was the, the only time I've seen the, the live performance like stage play of this movie. But Carl Anderson, the original Judas, was still in it. It was when he was still alive. Wow. But Sebastian Bach played Jesus. What? Unreal. <laughs> unreal event. Um, and I'm a fifth grader. Just FYI for everyone. The singer of Skid Row. Skid Row. <laughs> I was trying to remember. I was like, is he from Poison? But that's Brett Michaels, isn't it? Yeah, he was that. And then he was he was uh, he ingratiated himself to America after that by being in uh, Gilmore Girls quite regularly. Yes, exactly. He <laughs> was in Lane's band yes. as the old dad what? guitar player in Gilmore Girls. What? Oh, my God. That's amazing. So he was the Jesus. And when we were on this trip, my dad was doing a lot of work with families. He was doing education work with, with kids. And we were staying with this host family who was Baptist. And when my dad told them that we were going to see this musical, the mom of the family, like, freaked out. She was like, you can't take her to that. This is a blasphemous. This is a problem. Like that was banned in some places. You can't take her to it. But the next day she like approached us and had apologized because she thought he was taking me to a screening of the last temptation of Christ. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this was a hell of a time for Jesus media, the 1970 to 1990. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But I remember just like the feeling of the adults in the room when my dad said, Jesus Christ, superstar, just like the oh air got sucked out. And the mom was just like, you're not talking about that at my dinner table. It was unreal. Just <laughs> the whole experience. Wow. The, and this was, you know, also the era of Godspell, which I don't even yes. I've never seen Godspell. I don't know what was going on with that one. Well, Godspell, at least I know clips of in a way that I didn't know Jesus Christ, superstar. But Godspell famously is the production that like almost everyone who was involved in both National Lampoon and Saturday Night Live were involved in that like launched them into all working together in Second City and Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. That's so weird. They don't mention that enough. No, that's a good one. Like I, I really I don't even know who's announcing it anymore, but every night they should be like. It's Saturday Night Live. <laughs> None of this would be happening if it hadn't been for Godspell. Um, there's so much in this movie. I feel like we should just do a speed run of some of the things that we enjoy about it. I like the outfits. That, is it the Pharisees that have the big hats? Yes. Yeah. I love that whole look. It's incredible. I like that they're always hanging out on a scaffold that looks like it makes them look like they're in the Broadway musical nine or something <laughs> or like they're doing the cell block tango <laughs> <laughs> West side story coded, but with the best hats you can imagine. Yeah. And those hats are like, I, I still, I think about those hats all the time. Like, I don't know. I want to know what they're made of. I want, they mm -hmm. look so heavy. They're huge. They're as tall as each of them. Josely, what are some of your standout moments? Oh, so many of, of the lyrics, uh, I mean, as a Tim Rice musical, so many of the lyrics of this one just really stick in my head that are so fun, so silly, 
the Bible thumping hack from Galilee is something that just like <laughs> gets stuck in my head and I love to repeat it all over. I love when Judas is singing like the entire opening track, the Heaven on Their Minds song from Judas is so good. But when he's talking about how it's turning sour and he's just giving a thumbs down while he's singing, <laughs> I think that is like beautiful, perfect acting. It's wonderful. Every like slow shot of Jesus's face while the singing and partying is happening around him is just so burned into my brain. His facial expressions through this whole movie, especially when he's hitting like those really high notes, but his face is unchanging completely. And you just see his jaw like barely move while he's like, <laughs> it is so incredible. Ugh. Yeah, Jesus is a little cunty in this and I like it. So cunty. <laughs> Jesus is always cunty. That's his thing. <laughs> What kind of person just goes flipping over tables, you know? You got to be kind of oh, a jerk. It's true. I Okay, so I again, I think we could have a whole episode about the whipping scene, specifically. You're really, this is, we need to talk about your love of the whipping scene. <laughs> this touched me. Uh-huh. In many ways. How did it touch you? Yeah. Just like the, the for, obviously, just it's sexy because Jesus is getting whipped. Mm -hmm. The fact that they're whipping 39 times because 40 could kill is amazing mm. <laughs> i love a song that builds like i love a song that like almost has like a freight train like build and then gets faster and faster and it does that yeah just like the stool making song in uh <laughs> red white and blaine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes you're right never stopping never sleeping <laughs> there's a, a bunch of different vibe but there's a latigra song about uh, amadou diallo getting shot 41 times where they just count with no music 41 and it like so there's some thing about just like counting of consequence that like really gets me on a primal level but then like again like just thinking about how horny the lens of the movie is because we get all we get like the close-up shot of Herod's face who's like really getting off on this happening we get the guy who's whipping Jesus we get the fervor of the crowd and that song again we've said it a bunch of times we're just gonna take what you said a couple of times already the song fucking rips like the mm -hmm. <laughs> whipping Jesus song is amazing it whips. I love it. I love that scene. I have sent, like, if I have learned about people who don't know about Jesus Christ Superstar, I'll find that YouTube video and just go skip to the time signature of when the whipping starts and I'll send that to them like a real creep. Yeah, you're on some FBI lists for sure. <laughs> Pontius Pilate's, like, performance through that is so incredible, too. Like, yeah. as he's counting and yelling and, it, like, you can tell he's having a hard time with it and it's all this internal yeah. turmoil while he's getting louder and louder and like when he screams that last number it's just like it's intense it is as as a child that was a rough one to watch i'd get a little stressed yeah. out but uh it's a it's a wild scene well and that the tension of feeling worked up about it and not wanting to do it but needing to do it like it's so fucking kinky it's just the kinkiest scene mm. and when you read his like <laughs> reluctance and again Herod's like really into it great scene <laughs> well and speaking of Christianity you know like I was forget where I was this was on the east coast and it was I was like at a stoplight and I could see like perfectly framed in someone's window like a big crucifix with like a jesus on it which i feel like this is anecdotal but my sense is that like protestants typically will just have the cross they're like that's enough i know what it's a symbol <laughs> yeah, totally. of it's just a, just a cross and catholics are like no 
we need to always see exactly what happened. Yes. Yeah. I, I was always, I mean, I, again, I was raised in a, in a mainline New England Protestant church. So everything, like, I think the way that I thought of the difference between that and then whenever I'd go to like a Catholic church for like a family thing was like the mainline church was like a ghost story. And like the Catholic church was like saw, like it was like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, totally. I mean, literally there's like, you know, a saw trap where you have to like stick your hand into a circular saw, (laughs) you know? And it's like, the thing about the crucifixion is that like, we have told this story so many times and you can dwell on the pain as much as you want. And some denominations, you know, do that. (laughs) And we've just had Christmas and I've gone on record saying, I love baby Jesus stories. (laughs) I love thinking about baby Jesus. And it's so funny that like the two ways we really, you know, speaking of this is like a Christmas and an Easter movie. I know I talked about this on the show before, but it's like, Every year we celebrate the birth of Jesus and then like three or four months later, the death of Jesus. <laughs> it's kind of nuts. <laughs> it is absolutely beautifully nuts. Yeah. The most important things that a man can do. <laughs> Actually, briefly about what, who is Andrew Lloyd? What is the deal with Andrew Lloyd Webber? Who or what is Andrew Lloyd Webber? <laughs> like, what a legacy. This, I know he's like a dick, but like, I like, what a cultural legacy. I didn't know that he wrote music before I saw this movie. Mm. I mean, that is an insult. I know that he technically <laughs> did, but like, this is the first thing I've said of his where I was like, oh, I'm impressed. Yeah, I was, I was shocked at how great the music is based on how I know Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Yeah, I think this was the the only exposure I had to him where I was like, this is music I like, this is music I'm into. I, I like as far as a musical theater person, like, I like a lot of it, but I was never a musical theater person. But this is one of those where I'm like, the music in this is just so good. It's so good. Every moment of it, just like even where there aren't lyrics, just the Andrew Lloyd Webber moments are like so visceral and so, so focused on the feeling of, of what you're seeing. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. From this to cats. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Well, and speaking of like the Ted Neely high notes, like it feels like we're witnessing like part of actually the history of popular music where we have these, you know, this crazy duet between Jesus and Judas where they're both like hitting high notes in the style of like, Steven Tyler and Dream On. (laughs) 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 The other two people I want to mention who've played Herod, uh, Alice Cooper. What? Regularly on stage. Oh, my God. On one performance, and there's terrible audio of it, but there is audio of it in 2006, Jack Black, which (laughs) I feel is the best imaginable casting. Wow. Yeah. In history. He will be rocking in my show. (laughs) Through like research for this, like trying to just think about this movie in the context of everything else, I came across the Mr. Show sketch of like total parody of this movie, which I had never seen before. And I'd seen a lot of Mr. Show, but this was just not on my radar at all. Have either of you seen it? No. I've seen the entire series a hundred times and it's not coming to head. It is Jack Black as a jeezy, crazy <laughs> something like, or no, it's Jeepers Creepers. That's oh what it God. is. Oh, yeah. Jeepers <laughs> Creepers <laughs> so something. Funny. And like David Cross is in it. They like mirror a lot of shots, like completely scene for scene. It is 
not great, but it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I can't believe I, it never existed because it's such a perfect like crossover of things that I care about. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's Jack Black as, as the titular uh, Jeepers Creepers and it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I would truly, and I, I would say this with no exaggeration, a Tenacious D Jesus Christ Superstar record I would probably listen to every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I think. Oh my god. What else do we want to touch before we talk about who who Jesus Christ Superstar's daddy is? It's not God. <laughs> I mean, I is there a reading of this movie where this man is just a revolutionary who's decided independently without any confirmation from God himself that he is the son of God and now he's going to die and he's like really putting all the money on black. That was so I think that, that like part of the reason it works so well is like that's my read. Mm. Right. Like is that like this is just a guy. This is this was like a friend group to Josely's points. Like this was a scene. It got a little out of hand, like whatever. And if you bring your Jesus bias to the movie, like whatever your Jesus <laughs> bias is, this movie works for you. Hmm. If you're like son of God, you have that knowledge already. You know, he's the son of God. You know where the the orders are coming from. And this movie substantiates that for you. If you're me, you're like, this is this guy might be a crackpot, uh, um, which makes it actually cool. It's sad in a way that like the not cool. It's sad that they're like Jesus, the good guy, white lily high voice. Our bad guy who has to kill himself in the end, super cool black guy. Like that, the racial dynamics of that, not great. But it's a good read if you're like, I think Jesus did get a little eye hand, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that whole scene of him climbing that mountain and asking why it needs to be him, like there's no confirmation of like a response. <laughs> <laughs> These like Dennis Reynolds high notes. <laughs> Exactly. And I think like the fact that there's no resurrection in the film is like, yeah, you, you can really bring whatever you want to this, like your belief system fits into this movie, which I think is why it's so weirdly universal totally. for everybody <laughs> that likes cool shit. Yes. <laughs> if you don't like good musicals, then you're out of luck, unfortunately. But yeah, totally. I think I think so, too. And I was really watching this the first time I was like, all right, and then the crucifixion, and then that's going to take forever, and then we have a whole big thing after that, and the women, you know, go to the tomb and are like, oh, shit. But no, they just were like, yeah, and then, you know, then he was crucified, and then everyone got back in the bus and went home and had to deal with that, which is, um, I don't know, just kind of really, like, kind of fascinatingly radical, because the Bible... It's almost like there is this balance where you buy the cruelty of the crucifixion scene by being like, but then he was okay and he came back and everyone was like, oh my God. And they got to party and he got to say bye to everybody and then and then go to heaven. Like he got to like party with his buddies before he went to go to quote another David Cross joke, see all his dead pets. <laughs> the fact that this doesn't depict anything supernatural is really wonderful to me. Well, it speaks to like we've talked so many times on the show about how you don't like demonic horror, like necessarily like possession right. horror. Like I don't like, you know, The Exorcist is a great movie, but it's a great movie because it isn't like, hey, demons are pretty scary. If I right. say the word demon, you're scared already. Right. It's like it knows it has to earn its keep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this takes that out. This, ta this takes the, the supernatural part out of it. Totally. And just has a human. It's just a human horror of 
the state will kill you if you get too loud about your your radical beliefs. Yeah. And your friend yeah. will think he's doing you a favor, but he won't calculate the dynamic correctly. And it'll, you know, be the death of both of you. It's really actually much worse that way. Highly relatable. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, we know that Jesus Christ in this movie is, <laughs> you know, the son of somebody. Hard to say who. The ambiguity is what makes it great. But who is the daddy? <laughs> great framing. Um. I will. I will go uh, first and say. It's the whip. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I knew you were going to say that. It's Herod just strictly not from position or what he's saying or thinking in the movie. I just love that song and how he looks in the performance of that song so much. The glasses are great. The vibe is great. He's so bitchy. I love, we all know I love mm-hmm. a bitchy character, and Herod is probably the bitchiest mm-hmm. character in this movie. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Herod. His performance reminds me a little bit of a joke I started doing a while ago, which is imagine Peter Griffin (laughs) wearing just a thong and pasties kind of dancing about and singing Tom's Diner by Suzanne (laughs) Vega. It's the same vibe. Just feeling yourself. He's going big. And I like that. I think I just, I like that character generally, but then his, the portrayal in this movie is really fantastic. Yeah. He's one. He's delicious. He is delicious. Perfectly said. <laughs> Perfect word. Josalie, what is your, who is your daddy in Jesus Christ Superstar? I think it's gotta be Judas. I think from the get go, he's so, it really just feels like it's all coming from a place of love. He's got the best songs. He's got the best performance. The costume change when he's dead and an angel, I'm assuming, or some sort. And, you know, that big finale, this movie would not be nearly as meaningful to me without the Judas daddy, Mm -hmm. I think. So especially specifically the Carl Anderson, who I don't think I don't think anybody has looked more beautiful than he looks in this movie. It's just like he's too good. That's great. Yeah. Sarah Marshall. Well, I'm going to go with Mary Magdalene, who we haven't really talked about hardly at all, but is, of course, such a big part of this and, you know, the Jesus story for so many people. And who is she played by in this? Forget her name, but I remember she ended up being like a a backup vocalist for Eric Clapton after this. Oh, wow. Painful. She should have been rewarded with something much (laughs) better than that. I know. She's so good. Her (laughs) voice is so beautiful. She's so good at being pained. Mary Magdalene is played by Yvonne Elliman, and there's something about this character in the story that's always compelling. You always want to see how she's depicted. And I think, you know, there are certain songs in this movie that have become part of pop culture that you experience, even if you haven't seen it. And I think her big song, I Don't Know How to Love Him, is one of those for me. And like, I love the like midway through the musical song about like loving a problematic guy, just like, um, a boy like that in West Side Story. And I think that her character, like you can't have the human Jesus without Mary Magdalene, I really think. And we also get into a version of the like, should we use this nice oil on Jesus or should we, (laughs) you know, should we abandon self-care because mathematically we could do more good by not putting oil on ourselves. And that's a debate lefties are having to this very day. (laughs) And the answer is put oil on yourself. This is the truth. Well, this was the funnest. This was so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you.
This was so wonderful. Where can people find you if you can't walk across their swimming pool? (laughs) (laughs) Well, people can find me all over the internet. Um, I'm at Brosalie. My music is under Josalie Paulette all over Spotify, Apple Music. I hate Spotify, but I mean, you can find it there. (laughs) Um, I released a new record this year. It's great. It's uh, listenable. It's great. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. Don't listen to Josalie's assessment of their own record. (laughs) Don't you dare listen to this album. If you listen to this album, I'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give it a listen. This is called reverse psychology. (laughs) Exactly. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you to Josalie Pollitt for bringing this movie to us. Thanks to y'all for listening. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing the episode. We love you, Miranda. Thank you to Alyssa Anafrio, who is making videos for us that we're putting on Instagram and I'm putting it on my TikTok. They are great. Um, I was doing videos and they were fine, but Alyssa is now editing some videos for us and it's bringing in some new folks, which is nice. And I think it's a nice way to preview what we're doing. They're gorgeous videos. So check those out. It's it's our voices, which I think are beautiful, overlaid with really good looking footage. So check it out. Thank you, Alyssa, for doing that. Tony, what the fuck are you doing? Tony is fully balanced on an unopened pack of tarot cards, like uh, his little, anyway. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make these episodes sound so sweet. Thank you to all you fucking theater nerds who told us about how excited you are about this movie and it helped put us in a good brain space for it. Find us on social media. You are good. You are good pod. Thanks to you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. Our logo was made by Liz Clemo who we love. And if you are looking to have our logo on a shirt, you can find that linked in the show notes. All right, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Uh, You know what? If you've got a little voice in your head telling you you're not doing enough and you are sort of a failure and you should be filled with dread and all that, I would like to tell that voice on your behalf to fucking go fuck itself. (laughs) That's my moment of zen. Uh, for the week. That's my gift from me to you. We appreciate y'all. Thank you so much for being here. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. <laughs>